postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our event. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. So we've been looking at Paul's missionary journey, particularly Paul's missionary journey in Athens. Paul did lots of missionary journeys, but there's about three of them, and he did a lot of activity during those times. We've been specifically looking at his work in Athens, because in Athens, Paul is engaging a group of people who have no background in biblical faith whatsoever. So, for example, if you look at Paul's missionary journey in Thessalonica or in in, in Corinth, there were communities of people there. All good? Thank you very much, Jillian. Um, There were communities of people there who already had a background in Scripture, and so he was able to evangelize them based on that background. But in Athens, Paul was dealing with people who just had no clue about the Bible. And that's very similar to the world that we inhabit today. Very, very similar. So that's why we've been focusing on this. And we've we've seen three key lessons that we learned from Paul in Acts chapter 17. And I've been actually going backwards, so going from lesson three backwards. Lesson three, reaching our city is a partnership between us and God. We must work work with him and like him to reach others. That's one of the main keys that we find in Acts 17. Lesson two, Paul's provocation. He's provoked by the idolatry in the city. It didn't turn into condemnation. And this is, this is a challenge for us because it is so tempting to look at the things that surround us in our secular society and want to just condemn, condemn, condemn. But Paul, rather than condemning, uses that provocation to engage them in respectful mission. And then lesson number one, to reach a city, you have to leave the comfort of the building and go where people are. So we've just been breaking these down, started with lesson three, and each lesson had a few sub-points. So lesson three... Um, reaching our city is a partnership between us and God. And the three points that we saw there are, number one, don't burn bridges by focusing on differences with people. Build bridges by focusing on common ground. I'm not going to expand on this because I've done it in previous sermons. This is just a summary. So if you need to go back and see the full color of what I mean by that, you you can go back. Um, But don't burn bridges by focusing on differences. Build, burn bridges rather, but build them by focusing on common ground. Now, the incredible thing is, actually, no, I'm going to tell, I'll tell you guys that story later. Let me just finish this. So, number two, don't approach people from a top-down posture. And what it means by that is don't approach people as, I'm an Adventist, so I have all the answers, and you know nothing, and I'm here to teach you. Now, you may not say that, but if you approach people with that mindset, they can tell. And it's a huge, huge turnoff. But if you approach people side by side saying, hey, you know, I know you're searching for truth. I'm searching for truth as well. Let's journey together. That's way more successful and effective. And when you think about it, this is how Jesus operated. Jesus didn't simply have access to all truth. Jesus is truth. And yet he never interacted with his disciples from a top-down perspective. In fact, he did the exact opposite. At one point, he even told his disciples, hey, I have a lot of things to share with you, but it's not the right time. 
And so he went journeyed slowly and gently because he knew, even though he had access to all truth, even though he was all truth, he knew that if you come at people from the top down and just hammer them, it doesn't work. So he journeyed gently with people. And I think if God can do it, so can we. Um, so, and then the last one we saw, to become a student of your city or of your neighbor's or become a student of your city and your neighbors so that you can share the gospel in ways that make sense to them. And that's where we talked about contextualization. And I explained a little bit what that means in more detail in the previous sermon, so you can go back and check that out. Um, then we saw point two, prov the provocation that Paul experienced when he saw the idolatry in Athens. It didn't turn into condemnation. To the contrary, it became fuel for respectful missional engagement. And here we see... A lot of the same lessons from point three kind of repeat themselves. So, for example, number one, instead of attacking the culture, find evidence of God within the culture. But here's the thing, you guys. In order for you to do this effectively, you first have to believe that God is out there with people, that he's not just hanging out in here with us, that he's actively immersed in the lives of every person Every tribe, every culture, every generation, every season, God is present there with them. And he's journeying with them, and he's calling them to himself. I'll give you guys a, a quick story. So I worked with a, with a Buddhist lady. We became good friends. Her name's Rasika. Um, and I worked with her for some time. And we always got into conversations about faith and, and what we believed and I had a lot of really brilliant and beautiful opportunities to share with her what I believed. And, and, and I, I would ask her, what do you believe? Tell me your story. Um, and that's actually a really good window into sharing your faith with someone else is to say, hey, tell me your story and, and I'll share mine. So I asked her to tell me her story and she shared with me why she was a Buddhist. She, had, she was raised a Buddhist. She'd been a Buddhist all her life. But then one day... We were, we were driving to an appointment. She was a doctor, and I was the assistant. This is when I worked for Dalla Doctor. And um, we, were, we, were, we were driving to an appointment. And she said, you know, I don't know what the point is. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you go through this life, and you go through all of this suffering, and then you die, and you get reincarnated, and you have to go through it again. I just don't see the point. See, because in Buddhist belief, there's not really such thing as God in Buddhism. There is a universal force. There is a, a, a universal consciousness that precedes all things, the one. But this thing isn't personal, like the God that you and I know. It's just the energy. It's just force. And everything that exists comes from that thing. And it's very similar in Hinduism. Everything that exists comes from that thing. But think of a fire. I want you to think of a fire. You know when a fire is crackling, there's little embers that float off? You've seen that? Yeah. In, in the Buddhist and Hindu worldview, that's essentially what you and I are. We are bits of the flame. The flame is that universal oneness thing. And the bits of the flame is the souls that have escaped that universal one conscious, whatever. It's very strange language they used to describe it. Um, and so the goal of life is to get back to that source. That's the goal of life. But the problem is that in order to get back to that source, you have to engage a, a series of rituals 
that basically boil down to one simple premise, and the premise is this. Your existence is an illusion. You don't really exist. It's an illusion. Your consciousness, your individuality isn't really real because everything comes from that one thing. And so you have to deny your desires. You have to deny your wants. You have to escape desire, which is the illusion that you exist, in order to finally be reabsorbed into the, to the one. And this is called nirvana. And I asked her, what is nirvana? Because I had shared with her what heaven was. And I said, is nirvana similar? And her response to me was, actually, no. Um, nirvana just means the end. Your consciousness is reabsorbed into the universal one, and you cease to be. So heaven in Buddhism is not, hey, I get to go there and live in joy with God and with my friends and family in this new society built on love and grace. That's not, that's not a Buddhist idea at all. Heaven, or the closest thing they have to heaven, is the reabsorption of the illusion of you into the universal Brahman. And you cease to be. And all memory of you is wiped off. And even if you are wandering around in, in nirvana, they have this intermediary state where a person can go to sort of this intermediary heaven and they wander around. But when you get there, all your memories are wiped. So if I see Set there, I won't know him and he won't know me. And if you see your daughter there, she won't know you and you won't know her. It's, 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 it's very strange. But the bottom line is, this is the worldview through which she attempted to engineer her entire life. And there's no hope in that. And there's no beauty in that. And so in this moment of vulnerability, she just lets it out. She's like, what's the point? <laughs> Go through all of this suffering, and when I die, I just get reincarnated back into a different body, and I do it all over again. And the objective of, in Buddhism and Hinduism is to escape that cycle of reincarnation. Because right? so long as you don't escape it, you're just going to keep being reborn. But I want you to pay close attention to those words. When she said, what is the point of it all? You die, you suffer, you die, it starts all over again. That dissatisfaction, that oh, thirst for something more, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Because the Bible is very clear that none of us seek after God. God must first seek us. And that if God didn't seek us, we would never seek him. And so as soon as she said that, I knew that's the fingerprint of God in her life. I'm going to focus on that. I'm not going to sit here and say, Buddhism is evil and here's all the reasons why. That's, I mean, that might give her information, but it won't lead her to a saving relationship with Christ. I need to focus on where God is active. One more story and then I'll move on because I didn't expect, I didn't plan for that story to take so long. Um, I, I met with another lady years ago. Never been to church before a day in her life. Completely secular. Never read a Bible. Opened the Bible, sees the numbers, and she's like, what are those? Right? Never, never opened one. Never been to church. Never thought about it. And so I asked her because she had a friend who was Adventist and had been talking with the friend who was Adventist. And the friend said, oh, you should come see my pastor. So that's how I met her. Um, and so I asked her because she wanted a Bible study. And I said, well, why do you want a Bible study? You've never been to church a day in your life. No interest whatsoever before. She was about 30 years old. I said, why now? And her answer was, I have no idea. I just woke up one morning 
And I thought to myself, how can someone as conscious and alive and alert as I am someday die and that's it? And she said, I can't get that thought out of my head. It's haunting me. I just need answers. That's the Holy Spirit, you guys. That's God active in the world. Way before I showed up, way before her friend showed up, way before anybody showed up, the Spirit of God is active. And so that's what I say when it comes to reaching people, people who are so different from us, you guys, so different. Instead of attacking, find evidence of God because God is already active in their life. And if you focus on that and you have conversations on that and you pray over that, it's a bridge, it's an open door into their world that can lead them to Christ. Let me move that, that took longer than I hoped. So let me just go ahead and, and, um, and, and, and move here. So the second point was, um, whoops. Oh, yeah, this is, I wanted to share this quote with you guys. This is from uh, an agnostic author, actually. He wrote this in one of his novels. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I mean, that's, what do you do with that, right? An agnostic. He used to be an atheist. He's now become an agnostic. And, and this is what he wrote in one of his latest novels. It's like this is evidence that the Spirit of God is moving and calling and drawing, right? All right, so let me just move on here. So um, contextualize or translate your explanation of the truth so it makes sense to your hearers and your context. I talked a lot about that in the previous sermon, so make sure you check that out. Um, and remember that people don't know how much you care or don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, here's the thing. We can ignore this and we can choose not to do the work. But if we do, if we do, we miss one of the main blessings of mission. And we saw this in the life of Peter last week, that God invites us to join him in the work of reaching others because it's through that work that he changes us. He could just send the Holy Spirit and angels to give Bible studies to everybody, but he invites us to be in the work because it's through it that he changes us. So today I want to move into point one. To reach a city, we must leave the comfort of the building and go where people are. So go ahead and read in there in Acts chapter 17. I'm just going to read verses 16 and 17. We'll pray, and then I'll fly through because this intro took way longer than I hoped. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. Let's pray. Father, give us your Holy Spirit as we explore the life and mission of Paul just a little bit more. Speak to us, rattle us, shake us, awaken us, inspire us to not only believe in mission, but to live lives that are centered on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, here's the thing. Most sermons about mission um, usually follow a very simple formula. And those of you who've been in church for any number of years will be familiar with this formula. The formula usually goes something like this. Remind people that we are on a mission. Emphasize how all of us have a responsibility in that mission. And then encourage people, go do mission. And then nothing changes. Now, here's the thing. Everyone gets this. You look at this first lesson that we learn from Paul. To reach a city, 
we must leave the comfort of the building and go where people are. We know that. We, we know that we aren't going to reach our city inside the church building. And we know we need to be out there. No one is disputing that. The reason, I believe anyways, and I'm not infallible so I could be wrong, but I think the reason why most of the time sermons on mission don't go any further than a motivational speech is because we don't actually deal with the question of how. How do you do that? What does it look like? Think of it this way. The average person, let me use my experience because it's the one I'm most familiar with. You wake up in the morning and immediately, you know, your kids, they got to have breakfast and they got to get ready for school and you got to do the school drop-off. And, and, and then if you've, you've got to drive to work, you know, after the school drop-off, you're driving through traffic to get to work, especially if you have to go on the Koinana. Forget about it, right? It's terrible. So you're driving through traffic to get to work where you're bombarded with deadlines that you have to meet. And then you jump in more traffic to get to school pickup. And then after you bring your kids home from school, you got to spend time with the family and make some dinner. And then you got to eat the dinner. And then you got to get ready for the next day where you do it all over again. Now imagine that this person is also involved in church and maybe they teach a Sabbath school. So on top of all of this, they have to prepare their Sabbath school lesson so that they can teach. And maybe they're part of a ministry, so they, they've got a ministry meeting later that month. And they're also in the board, by the way, because it's usually the same people <laughs> who are, are usually doing all these things. And then on top of all of this, you've got your own family dramas and the management of your own emotional instabilities and health issues that you're having to process and deal with on a regular basis. And then the pastor gets up and says, we need to reach our city by getting out there. And he preaches a phenomenal sermon on it. And when the sermon's over, you sit there and you think, yeah, that sounds great, but I can't. So we start a ministry in the church to get out there, and we're feeding the homeless, and we're helping people every Sunday evening, and you're expected to attend, but you can't. Your calendar's already at breaking point. And you simply can't add another program to your already busy schedule. And so it seems reasonable in this context to think like this. Well, my life is hectic and busy as it is, but I pay my tithe. And with that, we can hire pastors and evangelists to do all the work because I just don't have the time. And you would be right. But I would argue you would also be wrong. And not just you, but all of us. Because maybe the problem is that we've completely misunderstood what mission is supposed to look like. So I'm going to make three very simple statements, and then I'm going to expand on them, and then we're going to close. Here's the three simple statements I want to make. Oh, how do we end up back there? Okay. Statement number one, mission is not a program, it is not an event, it is not a strategy, it is a way of life. 
Statement number two, mission is not an extra activity that you tack onto an already busy schedule. Mission is the redefining of your schedule. And point number three, mission is not something Christians do if we have leftover time and energy or special gifts. Mission is Christianity. So let me expand on these really quickly. And my hope is that by the time this ends, your life is still going to be crazy and busy, but you're going to realize, hey, I can do mission. All right, so let's do this. Number one, mission is not a program, event, or strategy. It is a way of life. Jesus said this in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples. You guys are familiar with it. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I've explained this in previous sermon before, but I'm going to explain it again as though I'd never explained it before because you probably don't remember. The Greek of Matthew 28, 19 doesn't read exactly like the English. It's not a bad translation. It's not mistranslated. It's just there's a, there's a nuance in the Greek that's lost when it moves into the English. And the nuance is this. In the Greek, therefore go is written in passive voice. Make disciples is written in active voice. Now, why does that matter? It matters because of this. If I said set, throw the ball. That is an active voice statement, and it's also a command, right? Because when something is in the active voice, it can be issued as a command. That's active voice. Set, throw the ball. It's a command, it's active voice. But when something is in passive voice, it sounds like this. The ball was thrown by set. That's past and is also passive. Now, here's the thing about the passive voice. When something is stated in the passive voice, it can never be a command. It doesn't matter how loud I yell, the ball was thrown by set. It will never be a command. Because passive is passive. It's not active. Active voice can be a command. Passive voice cannot. When you read Matthew 28, 19 in the Greek... Therefore, go is actually in the passive voice. When we translate it to the English, it changes from passive to active. So it sounds like a command. Therefore, go and make disciples. Now, make disciples in the active voice. It's a command. So we get that. We get that. That one's okay. But what I'm saying here is if we were to translate this by sticking to the Greek as close as possible, it would sound a little bit more like this. As you are going, passive voice, make disciples. Now, why does this matter? It matters because a lot of people think that the Great Commission means that you have to stop whatever it is you're doing and go. Be a pastor. Go. Be a missionary. Or go. Be a Bible worker. And for most people, that's just not possible. And so what happens is, we tend to think of that therefore go as applying to some people and not others. But what Jesus actually said is more realistic. He's not saying drop everything you're doing and go to some foreign land to make disciples. He's saying literally in the Greek, as you are going... As you're going to work, as you're going to the park, as you're going to school, 
as you're going, wherever you're going, make disciples. Now, what does this mean? It means keep going where you're going. You don't have to drop it all off. I mean, if God specifically tells you to do that, that's a different issue. But generally speaking, I'm speaking in generalities here, you don't have to drop everything you're doing to go and make disciples. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is keep going where you're going, but redefine it. Which means this, redefine your job from money-making to disciple-making. You're still going to your job. But the goal now is no longer, hey, I'm just here to make money. The goal now is I'm here to make disciples. Redefine school from degrees to disciples. Redefine your home from a hideaway from the world to a center for making disciples in your neighborhood. Because mission is not a program, event, or strategy. It is a way of being. It is a way of life. It redefines every aspect of what you're already doing. Now, I'm going to move on because i got to move quickly, but it'll make a little bit more sense as we go. So, point number two that I mentioned. Mission is not an extra activity that you tack onto an already busy schedule. Mission is the redefining of your schedule, and this is deeply tied to the very first point we just made. The main reason why our churches struggle to get missional engagement is simple. People are too busy. Now, I explained to you a little illustration about all the different things that most people end up having to do, but think of it this way. Imagine... Imagine a, a, a really big, giant Lego block, a square of Lego, right? A big one. I'm holding it in my hand. I put that Lego block on the floor. And then I stack different Lego blocks at different colors all the way up until it's about here. So I've got a tower of Lego blocks. Each and every one of those blocks of Lego represents a different activity that I have to do on a regular basis. And what mission looks like in most churches is, hey, here's another block. And then we wonder, why don't people get engaged? There's other reasons, but this is a big one. So we'll end up that the only people who usually do end up getting engaged in missional projects in the church are people who have either the capacity to do it, maybe they're retired, or maybe they have an easy schedule with their job, or their kids are grown, or they're just like super type A, gung-ho, nothing's going to stop them type people, and not everyone's like that. But what if God didn't intend for mission to be an extra block that you add to that tower of blocks? What if God intended mission to be the thing that redefines the entire tower? What if God intended for mission to be not another event on your calendar, but the redefinition of your entire calendar? You're at work 40 hours a week. Well, how do you build the kingdom of God while you're there? Mission doesn't have to be, oh, you're at work 40 hours a week, plus we have a program here, so make sure you show. No, how do you build the kingdom? You're there 40 hours a week. How do you build the kingdom of God while you're there? How do you build the kingdom of God when you're at school 30 hours a week? How do you build the kingdom of God anywhere you are, anywhere you go? 
And see, this is the key, you guys, and I hope that this is the thing that sort of comes across and makes the most sense, is that at least for the early Christians, mission was not an extra activity that they tacked on to their already busy schedules. Mission redefined everything. The kingdom redefined their entire existence. Their home, their career, their focus, their goals, everything became redefined with this mission. So they weren't doing anything extra. They were doing the same things they'd always been doing, but now it had a new meaning. It was about making disciples. Everything gets redefined by mission. All right, I'm going to move on to point number three because I'm going here quickly. Point number three, mission is not an aspect of Christianity. It's something that we do if we have leftover time and energy or special gifts. Mission is Christianity, and I think the point that I want to emphasize here is that, you know, mission isn't something that you just like, yeah, I'm a Christian and optional, the whole mission thing. It's, I think it's really optional. Um, when you look through Scripture, for example, every theme of Scripture is missional. The Sabbath. God wants to be with people. Study the Sabbath throughout Scripture. What, 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 is, what is it saying? Especially when you come to Genesis. You know, it's, God creates this world and he sets this day apart to spend time with humanity. It's like he actually wants to be with them. And now, if that doesn't shock you, try reading the Babylonian, Sumerian, and Egyptian creation myths in which the Bible was written. And you will not find anything close to a God who wanted to be with humans. This is radical. This is countercultural. There's this creator, Moses is writing, who actually wants to be with people. This is huge. The sanctuary. Have them make me a sanctuary so what? So that I may what? Dwell among them. What? He wants to be with people. Uh, the gospel. God wants to be with people. The incarnation. I mean, come on. What did, a, did the angel say to Mary? You will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The church, God wants to be with people. We are the hands and feet of Jesus moving into the world, reaching out to the world. Why? Because God wants to be with people. The, the, the new earth, God wants to be with people. This is how the story ends. And look, I heard a loud voice, this is Revelation 21.3, a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. The entire story of Scripture, the essence of God's character, the core of Christianity is God reaching out and reaching down and reaching through. Mission is not an aspect of Christianity. It is Christianity. So then the question is, okay, so what does this all mean? What does this all mean? Because we started out by looking at this number one lesson, the first lesson that we learned from Paul. To reach a city, you have to leave the comfort of the building and go where people are. And so what do we mean, or what am I trying to say with these three points? What I'm trying to say is very simple. We do need to leave the building, the comfort of the building, and go where people are. But that doesn't mean, necessarily, that we have to start a new program for you to add to your already busy schedule. Why? Because you already are where people are. Paul went to the marketplace. He didn't just hang out in the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. And so my question for you is, what's your marketplace? Because you already have one. 
We've gotten so used to thinking of mission as an external activity that we do that we've failed to realize that we are already, each and every one of us, in a mission field. And that the Holy Spirit wants to inhabit us in that mission field, in that marketplace that each of us inhabits. And he wants to do crazy cool things through us in those spaces. Your school, your work, your commute, your community, your hobby. This is your marketplace. And you're already there. And you're going to be there on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday for the foreseeable future. You are going to be in your marketplace. So rather than creating big events, and I'm not against that, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. I still think they have their place. But rather than creating big events that wear people out by expecting them to attend programs that they don't have time or energy for, my suggestion is let's empower one another to make disciples in the marketplaces we already inhabit. Because mission is not a program, and it's not an extra activity, and it's not an option. Mission is a way of life, the redefining of your schedule. Mission is Christianity. So what I want to do in the next and final sermon is I want to take the time to actually share some very basic strategies and models that you can use in your marketplace to connect with people and to share your faith with the people that you already are surrounded by. And then to top it off, I'm going to run a 10-week Zoom course on Friday nights that will look into how to study the Bible with others, how to share your faith, how to answer tough questions, how to use your, the gifts that God has given you. Uh, so next time I'm here, I'll have a sign-up sheet for that. And those who are interested, you can sign up for that, and we'll, it'll just go for 10 weeks. But that aside, I want to close with this. We've been looking at Paul this legendary missionary. We've been dissecting his work among the Athenian pagans. His sermon in the Parthenon. How he wandered the city and studied their idols and their worldview and then he took the gospel and he contextualized it and challenged them with the message of Jesus in a language they could understand. But the truth is, none of that is the reason why Paul was a successful missionary. Paul had a secret. And I'm using the word secret, you know, hyperbolically, because it's not a secret. It's very out in the open. But he had a secret, and the secret made him, second to Jesus, the greatest missionary who ever lived. And the secret to Paul's success as a missionary, and I believe each and every one of you here want to be successful missionaries. I believe that. Here's the truth. The secret for Paul's success was not a strategy. And it was not a formula. Now, I'm going to share some of those with you next week because they have their place. Not next week, but when I'm back. Because they have their place. They're helpful, especially those of us who are introverts. We're like, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to even get started. Well, there's, there's things you can do that help. And I'll share some of that with you. But the secret to Paul's success was not a strategy or some formula. 
The secret to his success was way more profound than this. And I think I'll have an easier time explaining it this way. The psychologist Jordan Peterson said this in one of his lectures, and I thought it was so profound that I couldn't stop thinking about it for almost two weeks. He said, the truth does set you free, but the problem is that it destroys everything that isn't worthy in you as it sets you free. And what he meant is that people are often afraid of the truth because if you embrace the truth, I mean, if you really embrace it, you know that a part or maybe even all of you has to die. And so this implies something super radical that I can talk about mission all day. And you can say amen all day as well. But somewhere deep inside, you know this is scary stuff because if you really believe it, if you really embrace what Jesus is up to in the world and you say, I want to be a part of that, God. I want to be a part of your mission. You know instinctively that a lot of you has to go and burn off and die. And this was Paul's secret. He embraced Jesus and his mission, and he knew the moment he did that everything he was would have to die. His reputation, his social network, his career aspirations, his identity as a Pharisee, all of it had to die. And I've come to believe that if we are truly going to reach our city, it's way bigger than models and strategies. It's even bigger than contextualization and all of those good things. Because good as those things might be, they can't bypass this simple truth. To reach this secular generation, jaded and indifferent to the message of the cross, a lot of who we are has to die. Our goals, our aspirations, our traditions and comfort zones, our priorities, our customs, our dreams, our goals, our desires, and it's painful. But if you think about it, the alternative is so much worse. A life of playing it safe, a Christianity built entirely on theories, a faith incapable of leaving a dent in history, a religion that never reaches across to help the suffering, an ideology defined entirely by predictable programs and banal events and half-empty buildings, and what's the point? And so in his final letter before he was executed, because Paul was too radical you can't leave people like that alive. Before he was executed, he wrote to his friend Timothy, and he said this in 2 Timothy 4, 5, and 6. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. I want to pause there. Something really amazing here. In the Old Testament, whenever a lamb was sacrificed, a drink offering 
was offered with it. I don't know if you were aware of that. We tend to be really aware of the whole lamb thing. Not so aware of the drink thing. That was new to me. Exodus 29.40, Numbers 15.5 are some of the places where it talks about this. When a lamb was offered, a drink offering was offered alongside it. So Paul is doing something really wild here. You'd miss it unless you understood the Jewish system of sacrifice, which his friend Timothy did. Paul is doing something really wild here. The lamb, Jesus, has been sacrificed, but Paul now sees himself as the drink offering that accompanies the lamb. He took his entire life in all of its temporal possibilities, and he said, nah, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he redefined his entire life. He no longer saw himself as someone entitled to the accolades of life. To the contrary, he saw himself in the totality of his being as a drink offering. Wow. That's heavy. And I have to stop and think, what would happen if I took this to heart? How much of who you are, of who I am, would remain if we really embrace this? How much of who we are would have to die in order to, for this to become our own lived experience rather than seeing ourselves as the architects of our own grandeur and comfort and prosperity? What if we saw ourselves as drink offerings for the kingdom, ready to be poured out on an altar of sacrifice just to reach another person? I've come to believe that this is what it's going to take to truly reach our cities. Not merely models or strategies or methods, and they have their place. But that's like maybe 10% of the journey, maybe even less. The real truth, the real thing, the real secret that moved Paul was the knowledge that if you embrace the gospel and Christ's missional call, then the parts of you out of tune with that truth have to go, and they have to burn off, and they have to die. And to quote my, once more from Peterson, that could be almost everything that you are. And that's a pretty scary thing to process. I get that. I don't want to trivialize it and pretend it's casual. But I don't know about you guys, this is how I feel. I feel like I've toyed around with the ordinary and the almost and the not quite and the more or less for far too long. And I just don't think it can get any worse than that. There's a pop singer, Avril Lavigne, who once sang in one of her songs, I want to be anything but ordinary, please. And I'm beginning to learn what Paul discovered so many decades ago. That the way to life is through death. So I want to close with this mission challenge, this summary for you guys to think about and wrestle with. As you think about the way in which you will build the kingdom in your own 
marketplace. Mission is a way of life. It is the redefining of your schedule and your wallet, everything that you are, because mission is Christianity.